This morning, I'm going to be preaching from Acts 4, verses 23 to 31 primarily. We'll look at the passage just after that briefly at the end, but Acts 4, verses 23 to 31. Um, and I landed on this passage a while ago um, to, to bring to you this morning, and then in the way that God does, it became a very timely passage. You know, God's Word is always pertinent, but with the events in our country, with the controversies, the upheaval, the, uh, just the general unsettledness, and then some of the ways that, uh, that Christians have been on the receiving end of criticism, often unfair after the Roe v. Wade thing, this passage, I looked at it and I thought, I, that, was, that was God's intent. So my hope is that it's a particular encouragement in this time for you as followers of Jesus Christ. Um, so a little bit of context since we're jumping into the middle of a story. The beginning of Acts, Jesus uh, tells his disciples, you will be my witnesses to Judea, Samaria, Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then Jesus ascends, he sends the Holy Spirit, Pentecost happens, and the church is born. Massive number of conversions on Pentecost. And they're still just a very fledgling church. But the apostles are making it a point to publicly preach. They're going to the temple and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, which actually makes total sense because, uh, because that's, that's the house of God, and that which is now found in Jesus Christ and in his church. So where we find ourselves in Acts 4.23 is Peter and John had gone to the temple. They had healed a lame man. They had then preached the gospel very boldly. Uh, this is the, the sermon where Peter famously says, there is no salvation, or there is salvation in no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Then they're called before the council of leaders and are told in no uncertain terms, you will not proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. You will not preach the gospel anymore. Uh, and the, the text doesn't say that there were particular threats, but the implication is at great risk to yourself. So if you choose to continue doing this, there will be pretty dire consequences. That's where we pick up the story. So brand new fledgling church. They don't have buildings. They don't have organizations. All they have is unity in Christ and a passion to proclaim the name of Jesus. That's a really good starting point for a church, by the way. Um, they're threatened, and then we come to Acts 4.23, and I'll just read the text for us. When they were released, so that's Peter and John from the council, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and these and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is God's word. So this morning, I want to approach the text with three questions. Um, I find that going to the Bible with questions is a good way to allow the Holy Spirit to, to make clear what's there. So the three questions I have are, how did they pray? What did they pray? And what was the result of their prayer? So how did they pray? What did they pray? And what was the result of their prayer? So first question, how did they pray? The text says in verse 24, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. So when Peter and John were released, they immediately went to the body of Christ. That was their first instinct was to go directly to the family of God. Their fellow believers, they shared what had happened. So they shared both what God had done gloriously in the healing and the proclamation of the gospel and the difficult. So the arrest, the silencing, the threats. And the response of the people of God is so striking because they lifted their voices together to God. So they didn't immediately say, what are we going to do about this? What's our plan? How are we going to respond? What's our statement? What's our strategy? No, they came together before the Lord and prayed. So they prayed in unity as one voice. So again, the question was, how did they pray? First, they prayed in unity as one voice. So we're very familiar with prayer requests and praying for one another. It's a good thing to do. But often this has become a bit uh, passe or trite for us. It's, it's almost just run of the mill. So somebody will come with a prayer request and we kind of go, man, I hate that for you. I'll be praying for you. And then we, we move on. There's sort of a, somebody wrote it on the card and submitted it, so we are obliged to pray for it, sensibility to how we pray. So we, we often treat prayer for needs within the church, for cultural issues, for whatever, as almost a box to be checked. Did that, done that, good. This is not like that at all. This kind of prayer, this unified prayer where they, they fall on their knees before the Lord is a lot more like what we see where Jacob wrestled with God in the Old Testament. There is a, there's an earnestness and a desperation and a, an understanding of the reality of God that, that is in these prayers. It, it sounds a little bit more like Jesus praying in the Garden of Eden where he is praying with such fervor that his sweat fell like drops of blood because they're, they're pouring out their hearts together and they prayed with one voice, one heart, one desire, and it wasn't focused on themselves or preferences or comforts. It wasn't just a, it would be nice if you did this, God. This is a matter of survival. Will the church of Jesus Christ survive or not? Christ had commissioned them, and they were up against an obstacle that seemed like this could be the end of the road. So they poured out their hearts together with that sort of earnestness and desire of unified dependence and looking to God to carry and lead them. This is not a thing that we often do in our church. Our churches, you know, even if we gather together to pray, there's not the sense of without the work of God, we do not exist as a body, as a mission, as followers of Jesus, they had, that, they had that sense. But it wasn't a prayer of fear. So life and death for them wasn't a matter of you know, panic. There's no panic in this. Peter and John didn't panic. The prayer, they, didn't, they didn't 
they didn't flee and kind of they weren't they weren't all up in arms because the second way that they prayed is that they prayed with confident faith. So it doesn't mean they were without fear, but that they truly believed that the best place to take their fear together was directly to the Lord. Their first response was we are facing a situation that we cannot resolve. What do we do? Together we go to the Lord. And we know that they prayed with confident faith because of the way that they start. Sovereign Lord. That's a strong start. It's not a mere honorific. When we pray, we will often say things like, Dear Heavenly Father, or Father God, or Lord Jesus. And it, it's almost like writing a form letter, you know, dear to whom it may concern. And it's just sort of like, we, we put this on the front so that God knows we're talking to him, in case he had any questions. And... And we fail to realize that those phrases are loaded with theological and biblical significance. Father God, okay, this is a conversation with our Heavenly Father. Lord Jesus, okay, now I'm talking to the King of the universe. Sovereign Lord, this is not a to whom it may concern. And it's not a, it's not a title of respect in the same way that, you know, your majesty or your highness would be. This is them publicly acknowledging together to one another and to the Lord exactly who God is. It's a statement of God's identity and a statement of reliance upon it. By opening their prayer this way, they're stating who their confidence and faith are in and why it's in Him. It's in the sovereign Lord and it's in Him because He's sovereign and Lord. So He rules over everything. None of this trouble that they were facing was outside of his control. When you start a prayer with Sovereign Lord, you've just said, everything I'm about to ask you is under your control. You you have the power over this. So they felt fear. We feel fear. We feel ill at ease because we're not in control. But when we look to the Sovereign Lord and we acknowledge that, it reorders things properly and we know where our hope lies. So they start with Sovereign Lord. Then they quote Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a psalm of God's sovereignty and power over rulers and nations. And we're going we're to look more deeply into that in a moment. So even when those nations oppose his people. So they say Sovereign Lord... Then they go to a psalm that is all about God's sovereignty over rulers and nations. And this is so beautiful and powerful because they're trusting in God because of what he has already said and done. Psalm 2 was written, I don't know how many hundreds of years before this. So they're looking at God's faithfulness, God's promises, and saying, you are sovereign Lord. This is what the the people of God have believed for centuries We continue to believe it. We continue to rest in it. They're taking God at his word. And their prayer and their faith is being shaped by God, not by fear, not by circumstance, not by uncertainty about the future. And this unified prayer of confident faith is a powerful thing. The Lord never ignores prayers like this. He doesn't ignore any prayers, but when God's people come together with a Sovereign Lord, we trust in you. You can be certain that the Lord will act through that prayer. 
This is quite literally the prayer on which God built his church. What happens after Acts 4 is the launch of a worldwide movement of the gospel. And we'll look at more on that in a moment. So they come to the Lord with confident faith in unity. And the Lord takes that prayer and says, you're trusting in me and you're asking for boldness. Watch what I can do. Which leads me to believe it's exactly the kind of prayer that we need in the church today. Your church may be in a very healthy place. The church is always in God's hands, but there are fractures. There's stagnation. There's disputes. There's controversy. Because we don't come to the Lord with a unified trust and faith and ask for the Holy Spirit to work through us and for God to continue to work. We, we get distracted and we focus on other things. We would do well to pray in the same manner they do. So that's how they prayed. It was unified. It was in confident faith in a sovereign Lord. Which brings us to the second question. What did they pray? What was the substance of their prayer? What did they praise God for? What did they ask of God? So we saw that they prayed to the sovereign Lord, but they didn't leave it vague. They didn't, they didn't say sovereign Lord and then just kind of as a category... They, they dove even deeper into the person and work of our Lord. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and these and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So Sovereign Lord who did this, 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 and this. They, there is, this is not open to misinterpretation. Nobody in that room could have wondered which sovereign Lord they were talking about or kind of floated away in distraction. This is sovereign Lord who was the creator and who spoke through David. Then they get into Psalm 2. So this is an active creator God. So what did they pray? First, they prayed the character and the person of God. So they prayed to him as the creator of heaven and earth. That puts him in power and authority over all things. Basically saying, if God created everything, and if God created mankind, and if God is on our side, what can man do to us? This just builds that confident faith. They're beginning their prayer in in a way that echoes the manner that Jesus taught us to pray. When the disciples went to Jesus, Peter and John among them, and said, Lord, teach us to pray, he said, pray then like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's a, there's a similar structure to sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth in terms of there's a, there's a title and praise. There is a statement of honor for who he is and what he's done, which means that we pray from a place of confidence. It's a, because of the declaration of who God is and what he's done. So that's, that's the first thing they pray is honor to the Lord, worship to the Lord in the way that Jesus taught us. Then they recall God's faithfulness and presence across time, so over centuries, because they declare that God spoke through David by the Holy Spirit. So the same Holy Spirit who arrived to them at Pentecost spoke through King David centuries before to give them this psalm that they were about to quote. So this means that God has been with his people, speaking to his people, establishing his people for centuries. God did not show up at Pentecost for the first time. 
he had been laying the groundwork, calling his people, establishing his people from the beginning. And they acknowledge that. And it means that God uses and empowers his people because they spoke through David. The only reason David was particularly special was because God made David particularly special and established him as the line from whom Jesus would come. So God uses his people. He empowers his people. He speaks through his people to further his kingdom, to build faith. And it means that we can rely on the scriptures because they are the words given by the Holy Spirit. So wrapped up in those little sentences, we have character of God. We have God's faithfulness throughout history to establish his people. We have a a doctrine of Scripture wrapped up in there because the Holy Spirit spoke through those who wrote the Scriptures. And we're still in like sentence one and a half of this prayer. Uh, we, could, we could learn a lot about praying from the early church. Then we get to verses 25 to 29, which recall the words of Psalm 2. I mentioned this earlier. And in this case, they compare the opposition of Jesus and his church, that's them, by the religious leaders to what David said about kings and rulers who rage and plot against God and his people. So they basically just draw an equivalence here. Those kings and rulers raged against the work of God and the people of God. That is still going on as these religious leaders rage against us, the church. But Psalm 2 is not a desperate prayer. There are many psalms that are somebody crying out from a place of darkness and desperation. This is not one of them. Psalm 2 is a psalm of triumph. We're not going to look all the way through Psalm 2. That's a separate sermon. But verse 4 and 8 of Psalm 2, if you want to make note, make it so clear because they're the tone of the psalm. They say things like, He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That is how much God is bothered by the opposition to him. He is not the least bit bothered. He's not flustered. He's not scared. He's certainly not surprised. He knew it was coming. And he worked through it. Even God's enemies are tools in his hands for the furthering of his kingdom. We see this in two ways. One, the, uh, the way that they pray and talk about how all of this happened by God's ordaining hand. The, these are the things that God intended. And the second is, through the persecution of the church, the church spread. No opposition to the Lord is, is fruitless in God's hands. It's fruitless for the enemy. They think they're winning. Satan always overplays his hand. He thought he won, at the, he thought he won in the garden. He thought he won at the cross. He thought he won in the persecution of the church. And in every case, the mission of the Lord was furthered. The people of God were established and protected. And then later in Psalm 2 and verse 8, God promised that the nations would be his people's heritage. So not only is God not flustered, not only does God work through this, God brings it around to a place of, of rich reward and promise, he says the nations will be his people's heritage. So this isn't a promise of like nationalistic conquering, saying you will take over the world, but it's a promise of his kingdom spreading to the nations. 
uses the phrase Gentiles there. That just means anybody who's not of the people of God. Well, that's us. We were, we were not the original audience of Psalm 2. We are the intended audience of Psalm 2 now. Because the nations are the heritage of God's people. Because of Jesus Christ. That's what's about to happen beginning in the following chapters of Acts. So we see in Psalm 2 a sovereign Lord not the least bit bothered by opposition, who uses opposition to further his kingdom, and the end of that is the nations becoming the people of God. That's what, that's what they prayed. They had a, gra- a grasp on God's sovereignty and on Scripture and on God's plan that they had, think about being in that room in that moment, they had no idea how it was going to play out, and they were confident that the Lord would play it out exactly as he intended, and that's how they prayed. And then they closed their prayer with a request. And what's surprising is what they did not ask for. They don't pray for relief from persecution or for protection. In the face of opposition, they did not say, Lord, grant us peace, grant us safety, protect us. I think they had a pretty firm grasp on Jesus' words that everyone who faithfully follows him will be hated like he was. I think they just sort of looked at him and went, yeah, this is what Jesus said was going to happen. And instead, they ask for boldness to proclaim Jesus Christ and for God to continue to work. That is not a human instinct. In the face of a threat, we flee threats or we fight back against threats. Fight or flight is human instinct, not Continue on the mission the Lord has given us. Fill us with boldness to proclaim Jesus Christ. And then they further that request, you continue to work in power. So grant us boldness to proclaim and you continue to work with power, Lord. That was all they asked for. Their passion, their yearning was for the work of God to go forth. And they wanted to be part of it at any cost. They rested in the promise and the person of God in his word, and trusted that he would fill them with boldness for the work ahead of them and through them. That that request is, should be like a compass for us as we face, I don't don't think the church is in any, any dire straits, I don't think we're in a threat, but we are facing opposition. We face it all the time, and the the more clear we are about the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of its ramifications for the dignity of human life and things like that, the more we will face opposition. Do we pray for victory? Do we pray for protection? Do we pray for peace? What do we pray for? We should pray for boldness to proclaim the reality of Jesus Christ and that the hand of the Lord would work in power. Just keep marching in that. So that's what they prayed, which leads us to the third question. What was the result of their prayer? So how they prayed, what they prayed, and what was the result? There was two main fruits, two main answers to their prayer. The first is boldness. They got exactly what they asked for. And the second is unity which is a few verses further down. So let's look at boldness first. It says very clearly, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Um, Sometimes 
in Scripture, prayers are answered over the course of decades and centuries. Sometimes God takes a very long time by our measurements to fulfill uh, his promises or answer a prayer. Uh, This was one sentence later. This was immediate. Lord, give us boldness. Here's your boldness. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to do the very thing they asked God to help them do. When we ask God for the ability to further his kingdom, the courage to proclaim Christ, and the boldness to persevere in the face of persecution, he will grant it. The Lord will not withhold boldness to represent Jesus Christ from us. There are some prayers that God answers no, because that wouldn't be a good idea for us. There are some prayers that God answers later, and there are some prayers that God says, you have what you need. He will say yes. He's already given us what we need to be bold in Jesus Christ, because if we are a follower of Jesus, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We just fail to live in that reality sometimes. We fail to recognize the presence and the reality of Jesus Christ in us. So if we lack boldness, it isn't that God hasn't answered our prayers, but that we're not relying on His Holy Spirit. When we shrink back from declaring the gospel, and all of us do this, it is not an easy thing. It's not an instinctive thing. So this is not looking at any one of you and going, you're, you're a coward. All of us are cowardly in the gospel, aside from the help of the Holy Spirit. So when we shrink back from the gospel, that's not God failing us, but it's because we've forgotten who's on our side. We've forgotten who's with us at all times, who empowers us, who gives us the words. So we rely on that. And this boldness that they prayed for carries the day through the rest of the book of Acts. This is, this is kind of like a minor turning point in Acts. They pray for boldness. They're granted boldness. And in the following chapters, we see further sermons. We see uh, the, the sermon and the arrest of Stephen being martyred, which then sets off a persecution which pushes the church further out into Central Asia. We see time and again, Paul preaching and being persecuted. You know, and in the middle of the chapters, it turns, the story turns towards Paul primarily as the, as kind of the the, the missionary who's going and planting churches and everything. But the, the boldness that they asked for pushed the church all the way to Rome, all the way to India, all the way to Africa, all the way to America. That's why we're here today, because they prayed for boldness and God gave it to them. This kind of unified prayer by the church catalyzed the very movement of the Holy Spirit that led Refuge Church to exist, led Emmanuel Church to exist. We exist because God answered this prayer. God doesn't think short-term God doesn't think in terms of, here, I'll give you this right now. His, his movement carries on until Christ's return, and their prayer was answered, and so we are here. So that boldness, I mean, when we read this, we, we could literally trace our spiritual lineage back to somebody in that room, probably. Somebody told you about Jesus, and you were saved. Somebody told that person about Jesus, and they were saved. Somebody told that person about Jesus. You go back, it, it ends up here. 
It ends up with the early church praying for boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Which means that when you tell somebody about Jesus with the boldness that the Holy Spirit gives you, 2,000 years from now, there might be another church in another place that's a result of that because the Holy Spirit works this way. So the result of their prayer was boldness leading to this kind of movement of the Spirit. The second result was unity. So we saw that they prayed in unity with one voice and one heart. And the result of this prayer and the result of their shared boldness was it was a different kind of unity amongst God's people in all of life. If we look at the next verses, verses 32 to 35, we see how God shaped a people around unity in Christ. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. It says they were of one heart and soul. What heart and soul? That of Jesus Christ. Their unity was not in a common cause. It wasn't because they had a common enemy or a common struggle. Every movement in history that has been bound around a common cause or a common movement or a common enemy has petered out. Because at some point, you fracture or the enemy is defeated and you have nothing left to, to unify you. So you just kind of go your own ways. And yet the church of Jesus Christ continues to meet and move and preach and proclaim Jesus Christ because their unity, our unity, is in a shared Savior and a shared family. Jesus bound them together like nothing else in the world could. And what we see here is not people who are, this isn't an economic system. We're not talking about this is the right way to, to distribute property. What we're seeing here is people who are so unified in Christ that they look at their brothers and sisters and they say, what I have is yours. You have a need, I have the means to meet the need. We share. So this, isn't, this wasn't anything dictated. This is a matter of Christ so unifying, so transforming people that their love poured out in all the tangible ways as well as all the relational ways. Any two people who are in Christ have more in common than any two people who are not. Family or otherwise. In Christ, we are all new creations, recreated by Jesus. We all share in the same Holy Spirit. We're, we are on a single mission. We rely on the same grace. This is stronger than blood, stronger than ethnicity, than social status, than place of birth, than educational level, than anything else that society groups people by. There are no affinity groups in the church. There's, there's just unity in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that friendships and relationships won't be shaped according to, to human means. That's fine. But that's not unity. That's connection. Those are different things. Unity is greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's what we see here. We see them laying down their lives, property, 
possessions, everything for one another. That's unity in Christ. Friends, this passage is a picture of Jesus building his church, drawing people together inexplicably but inseparably, putting us on a clear mission, and giving us a heart to follow him. The heart to proclaim the gospel is not ours. It is given to us. And when these believers in Jerusalem prayed with one spirit, one voice, and they cast themselves together on the mercy of Christ to ask for boldness, they were giving a glimpse, a preview of heaven, where every tribe, people from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather together and worship, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue will do what? Confess that Jesus is Lord. It's the ultimate culmination of give us boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus except there won't be any opposition in that day, and there won't be any reluctance, and there won't be anything in our hearts holding us back. It will just be pure praise and proclamation of the glory in the name of Jesus Christ. So these verses portray a miracle of salvation, of mission, of unity, and a miracle from which God took the gospel to the whole world to build his church, of which you and I are now part. We're part of this. We're the fruit of this. So when we gather together as the family of God, we're sharing in this same salvation, the same unity, the same mission through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to pray in a moment, and then David will come up and lead us in the Lord's Supper. And I'm just reminded of when, when we do this, we do this in remembrance of the work of Christ. This This was the work of Christ. This was the fruit of the work of Christ. So let me pray, and then we'll move towards the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, and we we do mean Father in heaven, our heavenly Father, the one who adopted us into your family, the one who made us co-heirs with Christ, the one who loves us like a father, provides for us, cares for us. We ask for the same boldness that you granted your early church. Your Holy Spirit has not changed. The same Holy Spirit who moved them to proclaim and to go and to share and to be unified, the same Holy Spirit who transformed lives is in us, with us. So as we move now, Lord, to communion, to holy communion, remembering the work of Jesus Christ, Help us to be drawn together in this beautiful kind of unity for the mission of the gospel as long as we live so that years and decades and centuries from now, if Jesus hasn't come back, people are the fruit of our unity and our boldness. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.